If you'll open your Bibles to our text today, Psalm 119, verse 129 through verse 136. And Alan has, uh, has read that passage for us this morning. This is continuing in uh, our journey through Psalm 119 and seeing the wonders and the glories of God's Word. If you ever go to a conference or a convention, especially if it's a big one, and especially if it's the kind that you have to pay for probably um, quite a bit, um, sometimes quite a bit uh, that, that you pay to go to these conferences, then a lot of times you'll walk away with some free stuff. It wasn't really free, but uh, you walk away with some stuff, swag, uh, and uh, they probably even have a nice bag for it, a swag bag. Um, Maybe you'll get some nice discounts on some merch at, uh, at a merch table or multiple merch tables. Um, as, as a matter of fact, I've, I've got the Reformation Study Bible here. This was uh, from the Ligonier National Conference um, several years ago. Um, they had plenty of swag there. I'm pretty sure they had a bag. And uh, I got this Bible for half off. So it's nice, it's, isn't it? It's, it's nice. And a, a lot of the, but a lot of the goodies that you get at, at conferences, um, they're just little mementos. Uh, the sort of thing that looks kind of neat when, when you get it, and you carry it around in a swag bag for a while, and then you get home, and then you wonder what you're going to do with it. And uh, if you go to a theme park, uh, Disneyland, or, or pretty much any tourist destination, you'll find designated spots for, uh, for photos, uh, maybe even a photographer who's, who's there with a camera to take photos and email them to you, or... Um, or give you a chance to buy them later and probably pay too much. And always someplace near the exit, there's a little gift shop where you can buy some overpriced souvenirs. Now, there's more than one reason why they like selling those things to you and why you like buying them. Now, one, of course, is because they want to make money. But there's another reason, and it's the same reason why you like getting free swag and, uh, and why convention organizers are eager to give it away. It's because it makes you feel like you got something out of it. And um, you invested a lot into going. Um, and when you look on it, when you look back on it, and you remember that trip, they want you to remember it. And they want you to walk away with something that will frame your memory in a positive way and make you feel like, it was worth it. They want you to feel like it was worth it. And you like those mementos because it makes you like feeling, um, it, you enjoy feeling uh, like it was worth it too. So those little mementos, maybe a little photo that you paid too much for and a frame that you paid too much for that helps you remember the trip, it makes it look back and remember, well, that really was worth it. They want you to feel that way, and you want to feel that way too. Well, church is not a club. Uh, this is not a convention. We're not here for a conference, and we don't give away swag. Uh, we are gathered here because this is a holy day. A holy day, not a holiday vacation, but a holy day, uh, truly holy. And we don't sell souvenirs either. The reason why we're here is Jesus. We're here to follow him. We're here to worship him. And 
you don't get a swag bag for doing that either. In fact, our Lord said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That sounds very much like the opposite of free goodies and swag. Not only do I not get any goodies, I have to deny myself, um, maybe give up what I have, maybe lose it, maybe lose things that are precious to me. But then the Lord also said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Following Christ and obeying his word might cost you everything. But if it costs you everything, then it's worth far more than what it cost. And it will gain you far more than what was lost. Our text today, again, is Psalm 119, 129 through 136. And our journey through the longest chapter of the Bible, all of which is speaking about Scripture. It is Scripture speaking about Scripture. It is God's Word about God's Word. Uh, This stanza is one of the most straightforward expressions of praise to God for his word, I think, in in, uh, all of Psalm 119. It starts with verse 129, which says, Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. Now, it is true that God does not give out candy and prizes every time you obey. But he is also incredibly gracious and generous and kind. If you were here for our Sunday school class this, uh, this morning, we talked about the doctrine of Scripture. And one of the things that, uh, that you heard uh, was that God's word is authority. And we obey it just because it's his word, just because of authority. The authority of God's word is so authoritative and powerful that we should obey God's word just for that reason alone, even if it wasn't, even if it, it wasn't going to do you any good, his authority is so powerful that you, you would owe, owe him obedience, even if it was to your harm. Amen. His authority is reason enough, but also his word is good. And it is so good that even if it wasn't authoritative, then, you would, then, then its goodness would be reason enough for you to follow, even if it didn't come with God's authority. And yet both are true. It is authority and it is good. So God commands you to obey in his word because he's God. And it comes with his authority, which is absolute. But he doesn't just command you to obey because he's God. He gives you his word. It is with his authority and yet It is also good. It is good in its own right, and it is good for you. By all rights, the fact that it is 
God's authority should be enough for us. He has every right to command our obedience. He is God. And really, we know that, don't we? We know that. We know that in other contexts. Imagine if a father said to his son, um, son, go clean your room. And the son said, sure, dad, for $20, I will take $10 up front and the rest when the job's done. Uh, Kids, don't try that. (laughs) It won't go well. It won't work. Because children must obey their parents because they are their parents. Because they have authority. We are creatures. God is our creator. Creatures must obey their creator because he's their creator. Because he has authority. We don't have the right to question or second-guess God or to demand payment. And when we obey, he doesn't owe us anything in exchange. And yet, God is gracious. And he is incredibly generous to us. And he gives us gracious and wonderful reasons to obey his word. His word is wonderful. And it is wonderful to us. And that's the theme of this stanza of Psalm 119. The rest of the stanza explains several of the precious reasons why the Bible is wonderful, why it's wonderful to us, and why the commandments that it gives us are so wonderful that it is truly worth it to seek, to know, and to obey. First, the word enables us to know God. Second, it changes us and changes our desires. And third, it secures our hope and it protects us. First, we see the first of these reasons to believe in verse 130. The word of God teaches us to know God. Verse 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. The word gives light. And it gives understanding. Notice that this is something that the word does. Um, It's not something that you do when you read the word, that that, that you go and find and and extract. But this is something that the word does. Um, And how does it do it? It does it through unfolding. The unfolding of your words uh, gives light and imparts understanding. This isn't referring to the literal opening of the book. You know, sometimes you see a a, a drawing or or, or a scene uh, where there's, you you open the book and light shoots out of it, right? You've seen uh, pictures or um, uh, drawn that way. Uh, That's that's not what it's talking about. It's not the opening that gives light and it shoots out into your face and, and you're blinded. No, this is talking about the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is talking about the Holy Spirit. It's not the literal opening of the word. The unfolding that is happening here is a work of the Holy Spirit. It, the Holy Spirit imparts understanding to the simple and not the learned or wise. So that second portion of this verse says it imparts understanding to the simple. And why the simple? Because the understanding comes from God. Uh, It is God acting through his word that imparts understanding 
not the wisdom or intelligence of the reader who gains that understanding. The unfolding of the word, the Holy Spirit's illumination of, of the word gives understanding even to the simple. And that's because the understanding comes from God. Now, for the purpose of helping us understand the context of this verse, what kind of light is verse 130 talking about? And what sort of understanding will the word impart to us? There are a lot of things that you can understand. So, a lot of things. Um, So, what kind of understanding is this verse talking about? Let's look ahead to verse 135, which is very similar, and I think it's, it, it, it's related to the context of the psalm, and it follows the same pattern as verse 130, speaking of light and then speaking of knowledge. Verse 135 says, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. The light that the word gives is the light of the face of God. It is God himself in all his glory. If you were here when Brian Onstead uh, preached for us, remember what the face of God represents? It represents all of him and his glory, his incomprehensible glory. Um, When the face of God shines upon you, it means you are seeing God for who he is. You are seeing his glory as it truly exists. And then the understanding that you get from the word, the understanding that this psalm is, is uh, speaking about, is understanding what God commands. If you think back uh, much earlier in our journey through Psalm 119, uh, we talked about the different words that can be used for God's word. His testimonies, his statutes, his commandments. There, there are many different, uh, different words. And here it refers to statutes, which means legal requirements, the things that you're supposed to do um, that, that, are, that call for your obedience. So this is actually talking about God's instructions. Uh, that uh, his, his moral laws that we are expected to um, obey. So this is, this, these verses are saying that in God's word, we see his face through what he requires of us. God's moral commandments are not arbitrary. They come from his attributes and his character, and they teach us what he loves. So as you read God's word, you certainly see him in, uh, in his works and in the doctrines of Scripture, but you also see him in what he's commanded of you because it shows you what he loves, what he values. If you want to know somebody, there's no better way than to understand what a person loves. What you love reveals a great deal of who you are. In our case, sometimes that's for better or it's for worse. Uh, we love a lot of things that we shouldn't love. But we love, um, we're created in, in God's image, and uh, God has given us um, grace, and there are things that we love that are of value as well. If you love watching English Premier League soccer, as I know at least some of you in this congregation do, there must be something about it that you love. 
that you've come to love. Maybe you started watching it because somebody else watched it or, or, um, or uh, you lived in a certain place for a while and so you got attached to a, a team. But over time, if you love it, then there are things about it that you came to love. And that, that goes for anything in life that, uh, that, that you've come to love. Maybe uh, if it's soccer, maybe it's as simple as the drive to competition. You just love the competition. Maybe it's the drama of the thin line between a victory and a loss, um, rejoicing and despair. Maybe it's the teamwork or the pursuit of excellence or the elegance of skillful motion in, in, in the play. Or maybe it's the individual stories of, uh, of, of great players or uh, underdogs who, um, who ex- uh, find a way to excel. However you first started watching it, when you began to love it, what you love about it says something about you. What God loves tells us something about him. When you open his word, you see his face. Now, people often talk about God's providence, what God ordains in history, and they wonder what that means about uh, who God is. Of course, people often talk about what it means that God allows evil in the world and that sort of thing. Those are mysteries. Uh, the mysteries of God haven't been revealed to us. We don't always have the answers to all of those uh, questions. Um, what we do have is his word. And if you want to know God's character, you shouldn't be looking to decipher the mysteries of his providence that he has not revealed. You ought to be looking to his statutes and what he's commanded. And that tells you his character. What God commands shows what he loves. What God forbids shows what he hates. And when we understand those things, we see his face. We see him. The more we know who he is, the better we are able to show our love and our thankfulness to him. 1 John 5 verse 3 says, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And on the other side, Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. When we read scripture, we see what God has commanded and what what he has forbidden, we see him. We see what he loves We see what he hates, and we show our love for him by loving what he loves and hating what he hates. That's his character. It's who he is. So God's word and his commandments reveal God himself to us. So we know what God loves, what he hates, and we know him. And it shows us how to love him. But there's nothing easy about that, is there? Now, we can, we can say, <laughs> now we see who God is, we see what he loves, but it, it's, it's one thing to, to uh, affirm that Scripture shows us what God, God loves, and it's something else to do it. Uh, and it's not easy, is it? Because we're sinners. We have sinful desires. But the good news is that God's word also changes those desires, It works a change in you. It changes who you are so that you will be more like who he is. 
And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 19, a rich young man asked God what he had to do in order to gain eternal life. And Jesus told him, um, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But the rich young man wouldn't do it. He loved his possessions too much. His desire for the things that he had was too strong. What if it was you? Think about every good thing that you have. Every precious thing. Everything that if, that, that's a, a worldly thing that helps you get through the day. Would you get rid of it all for the sake of Christ? It doesn't sound easy, does it? I think if you... I mean, we all know what the right answer is. Yes, we should do that. And saying so is one thing. And uh, doing it would be very different. It would be very difficult. As, uh, as a matter of fact, the disciples knew that. After that encounter with the rich young men, they told Jesus, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It takes a work of God. But that, God does that work for you and changes your desires. And the means he uses to change those desires is Scripture. Look at verses 131 through 133 of Psalm 119. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. All throughout Psalm 119, the psalmist prays to God to keep his steps steady, to keep his path straight, and it's no different here. The psalmist is looking to God to keep his path straight, to keep him from iniquity, keep him from sin. In verse 131, the psalmist says that he pants with his mouth Open. His desperation for God's commandments is that strong. It's not a very dignified picture, is it? This is a word picture. Um, people don't actually pant. Uh, it, it's not very, if, if you're hot, you know, animals pant when it's hot. If you pant um, as a human being, it, it's not good for you. It's not going to help you cool down. I think it's called hyperventilating. It, <laughs> It's not very good for you. So this is, uh, um, people don't pant, animals pant. So this is a picture, a word picture. Um, it is giving us a way to visualize the strength of the desire that we ought to have for God and for his word. It's a deer panting for water. I think that image of an animal thirsty and so desperate for water that it's panting uh, it helps us to think about our love for the word of God in a couple of ways. One is in the absolute sense, and the other is in a relative sense. In the absolute sense, to stand with your mouth open um, like an animal panting for need and desire, it is a picture of utter desperation, embarrassingly so. Um, Animals act on instinct, right? 
when they are driven to something, they just do they, they just do it. Um, there, there's not a, a, a debate, an internal uh, debate about it. They just do it. They need it. They go and they get it. When they know they need water, they act on that need and they go find water. This is an absolute need. So your approach to scripture is supposed to be with that absolute need. As much as you need water in a moment when you are dying of thirst. That's in the absolute sense, but I think there's a relative sense as well. That panting desperation, it means a desire that has overtaken every other concern. See, you're, you're not you know, an, an animal that's, uh, that, that's uh, panting uh, for water. It, it's not scrounging for food in that moment. It's not doing anything else. It is finding the shortest path that it can possibly take to get water. Everything else is a distraction, and that animal is going to go around it, get through it. It's going to find the quickest and shortest, most immediate path that it can possibly find to get water. Everything else is an unwelcome uh, distraction. Verse 132 reveals the work of grace in bringing about that desire. It's one thing to say that that's the kind of desire we ought to have, and it's another thing to have it. How do you get it? Verse 132 says, Be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love you. If you find that you do not love the word of God like you should, do you know where to find it? You find it in God. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And do you know how you can know God so that you can love him? You read it in his word. That's where you find it. It's in his word. Proverbs 18, 17 says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. This is, this is God's promise to you that if you seek him in his word, you will find him. Not just principles about him, not just theories about the economy of salvation. You will find him. And in finding him, you know that old, old song, to, uh, to know you is to love you, and I do? <laughs> to know God is to love him. It's not actually true of anybody else, but it's true of God. Amen. To know him as your father is to, is to love him. You seek him in his word and you know him and by the work of the Holy Spirit you will love him. More and more, uh, God will answer the psalmist's prayer for you as the psalmist prays in verse 133. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. What's the most important word in that verse? What word jumps out to you? I think it's the word promise. Because of that word, this prayer is more than just an earnest desire. You can pray for things that you earnestly desire, and, and you can say, Lord, your will be done. I, I don't know which way this is going to go. I don't know how you're going to answer this prayer. There are many prayers that we rightly ask that way. 
But when you pray in a way that is seeking a fulfillment of God's promise, then you pray knowing that the answer is yes. So this prayer is an expectation that you can hold to with confidence. You know that as you seek God in his word, as you seek him in his commandments, he will do this for you. And he will do, he will do it more and more as your Christian life goes on and he sanctifies you. And he will cause you to grow in your love and in your obedience to him. He will keep your steps more and more steady. He will grant you more and more freedom from sinful desires. And that's because this prayer is grounded in God's promise. 2 Corinthians one twenty eight says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. When you pray that prayer grounded in God's promise, the answer is yes. It is yes in Christ. You seek him in his word. You know him in his statutes, and he will change your desire gradually, sometimes in fits and starts, sometimes with three steps forward and two steps back. But more and more, he will change your desire so that you'll love what is good, keeping your steps steady, and so that you hate what is evil, so that iniquity will not get dominion over you. That's the reason why you ought to love the commandments of God, so that you can know him, so that you can love him and obey him. But beyond all that, the commandments are not only good in the abstract sense, although they certainly are that, they're also good for you. Verse 134 says, Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. The psalmist has a profound privilege that he can trust in God to redeem him from man's oppression. What does that mean? It means that he is safe. It means that whatever happens to him in this life, he is safe. He trusts in his God to redeem him, to deliver him in the midst of man's oppression. Now, the fact that the psalmist is specifically referring here to, the, to deliverance from man's oppression, it is interesting. Now, he could speak of deliverance from Satan. He could speak of deliverance from God's judgment against evil. And that would be equally true. He can find deliverance from Satan. Uh, in his Savior. He can find deliverance from God's judgment in uh, God's forgiveness and salvation. But here, he is talking about deliverance from man's oppression. Man's oppression is specifically and it is uniquely an earthly thing. In addition, the oppression of man is done by men. It's sin. So it's not a natural disaster or an accident. It's oppression uh, that men choose. Things that other people choose to do to you or that they choose to do that impacts you. So what's the psalmist asking for? He asks to be redeemed so that he can keep God's precepts, not just redeemed in a general sense but redeemed for a purpose. 
Redeem me so that I can keep your precepts. He's asking for hindrances to his obedience to be removed. As long as you live on this earth, other people will sin. They will sin against you. They will sin in ways that affect you. Unjustly so. That will happen. But the word of God redeems you from that oppression so that it will not be a hindrance to you. You don't have to fear it. In fact, you can trust that God is doing good even when you are oppressed. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Does this mean that persecution won't happen? No, it doesn't mean that. No, it doesn't. It means that when it happens, it will be a blessing for you. That is hard to understand, but it is a precious promise. It will happen, but God will make it a blessing for you. Blessed are you who are persecuted. You see, they can do nothing to you that God cannot repay a hundredfold. Remember that rich young ruler? How the disciples wondered how it could be possible to follow God when it could mean losing everything? Jesus said it's not possible for men, but it's possible with God. But he didn't just leave them there. He said more than that. He told them it would be worth it. That is nothing but a gracious promise because we would have every obligation to obey even if it wasn't worth it. But he told them it would be worth it. Even if they lost everything, it would be worth it to lose everything and more. He said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit life. I love that. You see that and there? It, it, it's a plus sign. <laughs> it's life plus have you ever heard in the news about someone who is convicted of some crime and you've heard about this, the, the sentence and it makes the headline, it's sentenced to natural life plus 20 years. Yeah. Life plus. How do you serve that other 20 years? You know what the word for that is? It's superfluous. Superfluous. <laughs> life is all you got. Plus 20. It's going overboard. It's like infinity plus one. No matter what you lose for the sake of righteousness in this life, what you gain with Christ will be far, 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 far more. You cannot imagine how much more it will be. That is the promise. Did you lose a house? You will gain it a hundredfold plus life. You lose lands? A hundredfold plus life. Brothers? Sisters, father, mother, children, a hundredfold plus life. Everything 
times 100 plus infinity. Will you make that trade? Is it worth it? It's worth it. That is how much following Jesus is worth it, even if it costs you absolutely everything. It is worth everything times 100 plus infinity. If you could give more than everything, it would be worth that too. Now verse 136 shows us the flip side of all this. We've seen the treasure and the value of following God's word. It is worth more than you can possibly give. How tragic that in spite of all of this, people still don't keep God's law. Do you see the tragedy of that? If this is the worth of following God's law, then how deep the tragedy of breaking God's law. Verse 136 says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. We have two pictures side by side. We have the deer panting desperately for water because that's how good God's word is. And then when you think about departing from God's law, you shed streams of tears, rivers of tears. When you know the value of God's word, it is cause for tremendous joy to see somebody follow it. And it is cause for deep anguish to see it broken. That too is a product of the change in heart that the Bible brings about. Have you learned to seek God in his word and to see his goodness and his character and his commandments? Do you rejoice over good? Do you notice it when you see it? And do you see it as a work of God through his word and his spirit? When you see it, do you grieve over evil? Do you see sin not only as a violation and bad enough because of the violation, but also a tragic missed opportunity to enjoy the goodness of God? Do you pant with your mouth embarrassingly, desperately open because your need for God is so much more powerful than anything else in the world? It is hard to hear that your faith in God might cost you. But the good news is that everything it costs you is worth it. A hundred times over, plus infinity. The kids can understand this. You can understand how hard it is, but you can also understand how good this is. You'll have something precious to you. Uh, Some of you have, some of the kids have a a special blanket that you sleep with at night or a favorite toy, a stuffed animal that you like to have with you, a favorite toy like a Nintendo Switch. For adults, they tend to be bigger things, a job, a house, people we love. Those are gifts from God, and I hope, I hope that you thank him every day for those gifts. But following Jesus means knowing that he is worth infinitely more, and He is worth, if you had to lose all of those things, every single one of them, 
your blanket, your favorite toy, your job, your house, your family, it would be worth it. And you can trust him that he will repay everything that you lose for his sake a hundred times over and infinitely more. That's how wonderful his word is. The gifts that you have in this life. Listen, the gifts you get in this life, they're just swag at a conference. Eventually you're going to get home and you're going to wonder why it's, it ever looks so nice to you. <laughs> it's kind of neat for a little while. But God's word offers so much more. It offers something eternal, something infinite, something perfect. And it's because of Christ. All of these promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. It's because of Christ. When we open his word, what we see in his word is the gospel. We see the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. We see that truth, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, we receive it and we believe it. The Spirit regenerates our hearts, makes us new creatures in Jesus Christ, and makes you his own, so that you belong to him. And he gives all of these promises then to you. That he started the work when he made you a new creature in him. Now you belong to him and he will, he will finish the work. He will finish it. All of these promises are yours, not because of anything that you've done, but by grace alone. And you receive it, not by anything you do, but simply by faith, by believing and trusting in the promises of the gospel. They're yours by faith. And then, when you have received that promise, you will open the holy word of God and you will see his face and you'll be transformed. Let's pray.